Well, today as we jump back into our Luke sermon series, we are going to dig into the very heart of the gospel as well as bump up against something the human heart is so slow to accept. Turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, and you follow along as I begin reading in verse 9. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Jesus is speaking. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. So what's going on right here, and why did Jesus tell this parable? Well, here's the first thing I want you to recognize. Number one, Jesus puts his finger right on something, right on something that every human being is trying to achieve. You say, what's that, Brad? Approval, acceptance, a settled sense that I'm okay, I'm up to par, I meet the standard. And this has been a human struggle for as long as there have been people. In 1967, psychiatrist Thomas Harris wrote a book titled, I'm Okay, You're Okay, that exploded onto the New York Times bestseller list and stayed there almost two solid years because it so resonates with our human longing to have someone say, you're okay. So much so that it has now sold over 15 million copies and been translated into 25 different languages. Because guess what? It's a universal, global, human longing that crosses country lines, ethnicity, human. Tell me I'm okay. Tell me I'm okay. But here's what I want to point out that people don't recognize. While it is widely understood and recognized that human beings have a longing to be told you're okay, here's what we learn from the Bible. What people don't recognize is that this hunger and longing for approval from other people around us is just the tip of the iceberg. Because it's actually a symptom of a much deeper, greater longing that all of us have for approval from our creator, God. And here's why. Because we are created in his image. There's a likeness and a connection. And so we know there's someone else. There's something else. I'm related to someone else. There's a longing. We're created in his image for his glory And with his law written on our hearts from birth. So you don't have to become a Christian. You don't have to start going to church for these things to happen. At birth, I have a 10-week-old granddaughter now. This little sweet Emma Grace is created in God's image. She's an image bearer. And she's created for God's glory. 
I hope she discovers that and realizes that sooner rather than later. We're in God's image. We were created for his glory, but we tend to choose to glorify something. We want to make much of something, but we fixate on something here in this world instead. And then every single one of us from birth actually have God's law written on our hearts. That's why human beings are the only creatures, animals, plants don't have, that struggle because we have a sense of there is a right, there is a wrong, there's just, there's unjust, there's holy, there's evil. Romans chapter two, verse. so the only thing that happens when you become a Christian and get born again is that awareness is heightened because now God's spirit works in tandem with your conscience and the law that was already there to clarify this even more and to give you the ability to obey that you don't have. But guess what? That law is already there. Romans chapter two, verse 15 tells us this. It says, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse. Here's what's going on inside of human beings. They have a conscience. They have God's law. So they have conflicting thoughts that either accuse or excuse, accuse or excuse. We have a longing for approval ultimately from God. But that's what drives us the way it does to seek it from other people, whether it's your dad or whether it's a coworker or whether it's a significant other in your life. And so that's the issue that Jesus puts his finger on right here in this passage. As he tells this parable and explains that there's basically two ways to go about trying to achieve this approval from God that you actually long for. And so he tells a parable, and and he sets it up the same way he sets up every parable. He sets this up in a shocking way because parables are not sweet, warm, comforting stories. This parable is as shocking as any of his parables because here's what he does, you guys. He chooses two people in their culture that could not be further apart, polar opposites on the spectrum of oh here's who we look up to and respect here's who we look down on and despise he chooses two people that could not be further apart a pharisee and a tax collector the pharisees were the poster child a pharisee was the poster child in that day for doing everything right they were looked up to as the gold standard for how to do it Oh, surely, surely God loves them and accepts them. And if I follow them and look to them and try to do what they're doing, he would accept me. The Pharisees. You realize the Pharisees were a group of people that they knew so much scripture. They, they memorized so much scripture, they would put it in a little leather box on their head and a leather box on their arm. And they were so particular and careful. When he says, I tithe of all I get, oh, they did. They would go out to their garden and every plant, if they had basil, if they had mint, they would count the number of leaves and pluck. If I see 10 basil leaves, I pluck one and I give that. They were doing it all right as far as rule keeping and following. The tax collector. The tax collector was the poster child for someone they despised, hated, looked down on. In fact, tax collectors were considered traitors, gangsters, and shakedown. I know you probably don't love paying taxes, but this is in a different category. So understand, here's why they were so hated. At that time, the Jews were living under Roman rule. Can you imagine your land has been occupied by somebody else? I know people are upset today. Our country's changing, but we're not occupied by another country. That would really, really get to you. They were occupied by the Romans who ruled them. And the Romans collected taxes and sent it back to Rome. Oh, but there's more. These were Jewish people who signed up and agreed to be a tax collector. And here's how it worked. I just finished up my taxes over the weekend, and praise God, it's clear there are brackets and there are categories. You make this much, you owe this much. That didn't exist. 
it was unclear what you owed. And the Roman government told the tax collectors, here's what we want. But go out and get whatever you can get and you keep the difference. These were wealthy, wealthy people and they were hated because they were in collaboration with the Roman rule and they were taking lots of money from their own people. So now with that in mind, two people, gold standard, despised. Let's dig into what would Jesus want us to see about these two radically different ways of trying to get God's approval. Two radically different ways of trying to get God's approval. Here's the first and by far the most common path that people step on because it just feels so right to us. Number two, you can knock yourself out trying to work on your own righteousness. You can knock yourself out trying to work on your own righteousness. And this approach could be summarized by the word achieve. You're trying to achieve it. You're trying to earn it. You're trying to check off all the boxes. You're trying to do all the right stuff. You're trying to achieve a level of righteousness by your own effort. Thinking, as long as I'm good enough. Oh, but there's more. This path, this path causes you to start to think. And as long as I get ahead of other people, I'll stand out to God and win his approval. I'm going to be good enough and I'm going to be ahead of other people. And I'll stand out and win his approval. But here's the huge problem with this approach. And some of you know what it is because you're living it. You're living it. I hope you realize when we read the Bible, it's not like, oh, wow, that's interesting that that was happening back then. This is happening today. The Bible's timeless because there's a God who wrote it that knows us and people are people are people are people. Never mind that we get from where to where we're going different means than they did. The heart's the same. This is the pr- huge problem. Oh, if you step onto this path, you face a cluster of nagging questions. How good is good enough? But how good is good enough? And how much do I need to do? And how far ahead of other people do I need to get? And oh, here's the big one. And how do I know if I'm ever done? Do I ever get there? Can I ever rest? Can I ever have peace? Can I ever know that I'm okay? Those are the cluster of nagging questions that you face. And yet I hear it often as I try to engage people spiritually. They'll say, I'm trying to be good. How good is good enough? How much is enough? And how do you know if you're there? So I want you to look at how Jesus describes this trying to achieve your own righteousness path. Letter A, he says you're going to be focused. If you get on this path, you will be focused on outward behavior. Outward behavior far more than internal character and heart. You're going to stay focused on outward Behavior. Look at the Pharisee. Look at what he's focused on in verse 11. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners. Unjust. Adulterers. And notice how he stacks the deck. You see what he's doing? Notice how he stacks the deck with some of the most outward and obvious, outward and obvious sins where it's easy to say, I'm so glad I'm not like that. I'm so glad I haven't done that. I'm so glad I'm not him or her. Again, as I engage people in my neighborhood or the gym or on a plane or wherever it is, what do they usually say? They never say to me, I've never coveted. I've never lied. What do they say? I've not committed murder and I've been faithful to my wife. I've never committed adultery. And my favorite thing, and so I'm good. I'm a good man. My favorite thing to say is, do you know that good people go to hell? That rocks them. They're like, what? What? Yeah. Because God looks at the heart. What about your pride? What about covetousness? What about, what about, what about, what about, what about? But when you get on this path, it's all about you are externally, outwardly focused. 
of, of avoiding the big, obvious sins. But there's something critical and biblical that's missing. Because notice how he doesn't say, God, I thank you that I'm becoming a kinder person. I'm more gentle than I used to be. I'm more humble than I used to be. I'm able to love people I didn't used to love. And oh, I'm able to maintain joy and peace in the midst of horrible trials and unpleasant circumstances. God, thank you for an internal, inside-out work that you've been doing in me. I'm not perfect, but wow, this is you. None of that. None of that. Because he's externally focused and his concept of sin is simply all about not breaking and not violating obvious outward rules while he ignores what's going on in his heart that is really, really ugly. Does God ignore what's going on in our hearts? No. I mean, look at the ugly heart. Can you imagine? He's so unaware that he would literally say in a public worship service, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. And then he has the audacity to look around and pick out someone else in the crowd and point to them and say, like this tax collector. Now, probably no one here has been that stupid. But again, it's a parable, so Jesus is being extreme. But could we be honest? Doesn't it happen internally? Where you pick somebody out and you're like, oh my word, so glad I've not done that. So glad I'm not like that. Look at them. Oh, our hearts are ugly. Our hearts are ugly. Secondly, when you head down this achieve your own righteousness path, ooh, letter B, you basically end up trusting in yourself. Oh, listen, there's not a big distinction in our world of people who trust and have faith and trust God and other people that are purely logical and scientific. No, no, everybody, you guys, every human being is trusting in somebody. It's just the question of who. And these people on this path, guess what? They're trusting in themselves, in themselves, Jesus hits it head on when he sets up the whole parable. Look at what he says in verse 9. And he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. You see, with the achieve your own righteousness approach, you're at the center of this whole spiritual endeavor. You are at the center of this. And yet, here's what people don't, Keep in mind that the Bible tells us it's radically different than what we think. It says they trusted, they trusted in themselves that they were righteous. What does the Bible tell us as to how many people are righteous? Yeah. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 verse 10, Paul says, there is none righteous. And then I love this. You know, inspired by the Holy Spirit, it's like he knows there's going to be pushback. What about my grandmother? She's so sweet. Oh, my word. She's got to be righteous. No, not one. Not one. No, who's coming to your mind that you think's in that category? Not. There's none righteous. No, not one. The same chapter says, for how many have sinned? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Human beings tend to say there's a holy God and there's good people and bad people. Three categories in our world. The Bible narrows it down to two categories. There's a holy God and sinful people, period. Period. There's none righteous, no, not one. But see, this path, when you get on this path, everything's riding on you. Everything's riding on you, which I might add. Think about this. If you're on this path, consider everything's riding on you, which is why you are so irritable, insecure, easily threatened and offended by so many people and undone by any criticism from anyone. Consider, I run into it as I try to counsel and help people. I run into people that they, I know we live in a hard world People can do mean things to you, but after a while you're like, 
What's up with you? You are offended by everyone. Everyone offends you. Everyone offends you. Everyone offends you. I've had more than one situation where it was a woman and the conflict in their marriage was she keeps wanting her husband to go back and rebuke everyone that that she thinks she's been offended by. And he didn't want to do it. Because in an honest moment, he said, she has a problem. She has a problem. Oh, my word. What is going on with someone that's just... It's because, think about it, if you are in the midst of trying to prove how good you are, and that you're better than everybody else, you are going to be easily threatened, easily offended, and not just troubled, but devastated by any criticism. Anyone who points out anything, any flaw or sin in you, you'll be crushed and devastated so that here's what happens, you'll either attack or react with tears, manipulation, anger, or a combo because you want that person to remember don't ever do that again don't ever try to tell me something about me now don't hear me saying it's fun even in our marriage we have an agreement how we're going to begin these conversations and that helps but we've been married 37 years so when she says honey can I get your help on something buckle up strap in I know that means I'm going to tell you something about you and not a glorious thing sure honey bunny (laughs) right because she lives with me but man don't hear me saying I'm like oh I love that I'll do that more but there's a difference when you are in the middle of thinking I have to prove how good I am you respond very differently than when you know you're a sinner in need of a savior and evidence of sin in your life doesn't change anything about your biggest problem being solved and you being in relationship with God and you being a child of God and having a robe of righteousness. You're not crushed and devastated and do not have to attack or react. But when you're on this achieve your own righteousness path, so I I want some of you to consider. Consider. If you're that person, do you understand grace? Are you resting and trusting in a savior? Or more than you realize, are you still trying to do it and achieve it and prove it? Something else that begins to kick in that you'll see when you head down this path, let her see, you'll be inclined to pull away from other people you think aren't doing as well as you. Makes sense, right? If it's achieve my own righteousness, then I got to make sure I'm not even seen around people that aren't doing this as well as I am. It might rub off on me or I might be lumped into that group. I have to stay away from anyone I don't think is doing this right. Look at verse 11, what the Pharisee did. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed. He stood far away from everyone else. And so will you if your approach to getting God's righteousness consists of trying to achieve it for yourself. Because when you get on that path, you can't risk being around others who aren't doing the same thing you're doing or doing it as well. Because your righteousness is all about doing all the right things and who you don't do it with who you don't spend time with. One of the biggest criticisms that Jesus faced, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, was spending time with the wrong people. It was relentless that the Pharisees would say, why does your master eat with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes? Now don't hear me saying you want to run with a bad crowd and be just like them. But when you know you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, You can be with people that are broken and messed up and sinful and you actually want to and you realize they need help. You're you're not looking down on them and you're not saying, oh, I don't even want to be seen seen with them because you've got a different paradigm for how you're right with God. This does not jeopardize my standing with God. In fact, it fulfills my calling from God. You realize he's called us to go and to reach these people. But when you watch, quote, so-called Christians who they mainly pride themselves, and I grew up in the South, deep South, 
And sadly, it was a lot of this. We don't play cards. We don't go to movies. We don't smoke. And we don't hang out with anyone who does. There, aren't we great? And it was a huge put-off to unbelievers. And sadly, unbelievers began to think, is that what it means to be a Christian? It's what you don't do, who you don't do it with, and you're very judgmental towards everyone else. I'm not saying none of those people are saved. I am saying those people didn't get their marching orders from their Savior, Jesus Christ. Christianity is not about what you do or don't do or who you spend time with. Now, granted, don't hear what I'm not saying. When you know him and you're in relationship with him and you've been saved, does your life begin to change? Will he begin to work? But the changes come about because new life has already happened that's based on grace. You don't begin to try to do this or not do this to achieve his favor. You do it because you have his favor and you want to be more like him and please him and follow him and live for him. And this, this issue of I'll be very careful, I'll pull away from people leads right into the next characteristic, letter D. Your strongest, if you're on this achieve your own righteousness path, your strongest emotion towards other people will most often be contempt rather than compassion. Contempt rather than compassion. Do you realize the number one emotion that we see pointed out about Jesus in the Gospels is compassion. And it's a word, splotna. It means right here. I mean, it wasn't like just a little tremor. He was moved in his very gut. It says he would look out on the... And imagine, he knew all. He could see the hearts. And instead of like, oh, it was like... And he was moved with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Some of those people you work with and that live on your street... They're lost, you guys. They're so lost. And I know we live in a world now that that lostness is showing up in frightening ways. But if your strongest emotion is contempt about some of the sexuality issues, about some of the other issues, spend some time with your Savior Jesus and say, help me have compassion, 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 We're not supposed to be afraid of these people and attack them and despise them. We should have compassion. When his heart becomes more of your heart, you're like, oh my goodness. Here's what starts to happen also. When you're on the self-righteousness, achieve your own righteousness path, guess what? You regularly consider how you're so not like them. And, And if this is a regular thought for you, how could? That should not be a regular thought. News alert, you are more like them than different. You are more, that could be you, but for the grace of God. That could be you. I look back on my, on my high school, et cetera, my earlier, I'm thinking, God, thank you. I could easily be in some other place, in some other confused camp. Today is so confusing as they're like, if you've ever had a feeling for another guy, then maybe you're, I don't know where I would be today except the grace of God. This is not because Brad Bigney's done it so right and has followed all the rules so well. God rescued me from me. Hallelujah. If you have clarity, if you don't have the the amount of confusion today, if you have more light than darkness, if you're not tangled up in your own thoughts and minds, give God thanks. He did that for you. You didn't do that. You didn't do that. Your strongest emotion towards other people when you're on this path is contempt rather than compassion. You'll have a lot of contempt for a lot of groups of people and almost no compassion for anyone. You think, well, they don't deserve it. You guys, the very definition of mercy and compassion is you give it when it's not deserved. Hello? What's it say? His mercies for us are renewed once a year. We got a bucket of it for 2023. Nope, what's it say? His mercies are. Mercy is not giving you what you 
deserve. That's what he's doing for you every day. Not giving you what you deserve. And then grace is lavishing you with something you don't deserve. Mercy every, every morning. New mercies. Grace. Mercy. Grace. Because look at verse 9. Look at the last phrase in verse 9. When you are trusting in yourself that you are righteous and you stand apart from other people because you're afraid of getting defiled by them, oh, this naturally leads in to this. Verse 9. And he treated others with contempt. The NIV says he looked down on everybody else. He looked down. Oh, listen, these two things go hand in hand. These two things go together. They just, they happen. Trusting in yourself will lead to despising others. You have to, because you're in the midst of trying to prove that you're better and feel that you're better. And so this approach of trying to achieve God's righteousness, oh, certainly it messes up your vertical relationship with God. You're not going to have a relationship with God this way, but guess what else? Oh my goodness, this mindset and this person that's on this path, it wreaks havoc on their horizontal human relationships. These are some of the hardest people. These are some of the hardest people to be in relationship with. When someone is on a achieve your own righteousness path, ooh, they are hard to be married to. They are hard to room with. They're hard to work with. They're hard to play with. They're hard to go to church with. And here's why. Since this approach is all about your own effort, guess what? You don't get God's grace. And when you don't get God's grace, you don't have any grace to extend to others around you. You realize we're not manufacturers of grace? We can't create grace. You have to receive it. So you can't give what you're not getting. You can't give what you're not giving. Think about James 4. God does what to the proud? Opposes. And gives what to the humble? This person is a proud woman, a proud man that's very focused on what they think they're doing. Therefore, they get no grace. And that's why when you live with them, you're married, or you're a roommate with them, or you're a coworker with them, you're like, whew, man, right? No grace. No grace. No grace. You get no grace because they have no grace to extend. But, oh, praise God, there's another path. There's another path that Jesus is talking about. So let's talk about it. Number three, you can, instead of trying to work so hard for your own righteousness and prove it, oh, you can. But here's a key word that is the first stumbling block for human beings. You can humble yourself. And receive God's free gift of perfect righteousness. You can humble yourself and receive God's free gift. As opposed to the word achieve. So this path, you're working hard on it yourself, could be summarized by achieve. This path could be summarized by believe and receive. Believe and receive. This one is characterized by an unending, exhausting, joyless do. It's what you're trying to do. It's what you're trying to do. This is characterized by what God in Jesus has done for us. And you believe it and receive it. You believe it and receive it. You believe it and receive it. And so it's radically different than the achieve your own righteousness. Let me show you how it's different. Letter A. You step onto this path of believing and receiving something you couldn't do for yourself. You'll stop comparing yourself to anyone else. That's not, that's not your paradigm anymore. No one else exists. It's just you and God, and you'll be gripped by your own sin. 
I've been here 27 years and I can't tell, I've led a small group for 27 years. I can't tell you how many times someone gives a testimony as we're just sharing, how did you come to faith in Christ? Guess what? Everybody doesn't have a testimony. It's like, I was snorting cocaine. I was stealing and doing drugs and thugging. And God saved me. Guess what many testimonies sound like that I've heard over these 27 years? I was in church. I was in this church, Brad. And I thought I was really good. And I thought I was a Christian. And then, for the first time ever, I was gripped in a way I'd never been gripped before. Oh! Every time Brad or Peter or Brian or anybody talks about sinners, every time it comes up in the scripture, oh, I am a sinner. They'd never actually seen themselves in that category. And for the very first time, something happened that had never happened before. They tasted grace. There was a freedom and a joy and a life. But see, it begins by, until you see yourself as a sinner, you're not even a candidate for a savior. Because you don't need a savior. When you think it's what you're doing, you just need a list. And here we go, I'll do it. I'll do it. And you just compare yourself to others to say, well, I'm ahead of that, I'm ahead of her, I'm not like him. Good. Oh, I am a sinner. You'll be gripped by your own sin. Look at what's going on in verse 13. Look at the way the tax collector describes himself. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Now, if you're looking at your Bible and you're like, Brad, I don't, my Bible doesn't say the sinner. Well, I'll tell you why. Because only the New American Standard translation was brave enough to print it that way. Every other translation committee thought it would be confusing and sound odd. But guess what? He actually uses a definite article in the Greek that means the sinner. There's a way to say a sinner, and there's a way to say the sinner. And he chose to say, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And here's what I think is going on. When you really are to the place you have to be, to experience receiving this incredible gift, you realize it's just a holy God, me, and my sin. I am the sinner. You're done thinking about anybody else or comparing to anybody else. It's just me and a holy God. I am the... Here's how it also sounds. For the first time, you you find yourself thinking, I'm the biggest sinner I know. I used to think of all kinds of other people that were big sinners. I'm a little sinner. I'm an itty-bitty sinner. Oh, no, no, I'm the biggest sinner I know because I live with me. Oh, my goodness. Are you not shocked by yourself sometimes? Praise God I don't act out on everything I've ever felt, but I still have heinous moments where I'm like, oh, 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 that was me, me, the sinner. And I'll just regularly say, oh, God, Thank you. It's your restraining grace in my life. It's your ongoing work in my life. It's the resurrected Jesus Christ in my life. It's direct access to your throne with a high priest that prays for me day and night that keeps me on this path and has me where I am. Whoo! I am still the sinner, but I'm saved by an incredible Savior who says he will not let you go. When he lays hold of you, He'll finish what he starts. But he lays hold of sinners big time. Even Jesus himself said, I did not come for the righteous. He didn't mean that there were any. He meant like right here. Those people in the crowd that think they're righteous, I'm not here for them. Because they're not even a candidate. They're not going to hear what I'm saying. Think about how many times Jesus said, let him who have ears to hear, hear. Everybody standing there has two on each side of their head. Does everybody hear it the way they need to hear it no and that's why he would say oh man hear this I need you to hear this I need you to hear this the problem is we have this huge voice inside that just keeps saying you're not that bad you're not that bad you're way ahead of others you're not that bad oh let him who has ears to hear hear I came to save sinners even like from the very beginning when the angel came and told Joseph, you know, your fiance's going to have a baby. Call his name Jesus, for he shall save 
his people from their sin. He came to rescue sinners, sinners who knew they need a savior. That's how the tax collector described himself. But notice what else is going on with the believe and receive. Letter B, you will beg God to take care of your sin problem in a way you could never do on your own. And here's how, here's how this comes out in the parable stronger than what you see in your English translation right there. In verse 13, when he says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. There's a perfectly good word for mercy that's used most often in the New Testament. It's Elias. He doesn't use that word. He uses the word hilasterion that means atone for my sin. I need somebody to atone for my sin. Somebody pay the price for my sin. I need a substitute. I need a savior. He, you know, when you hear the word mercy, you might think, he's not saying, oh, Lord, look past my sin. Oh, Lord, give me a break. Oh, Lord, uh-uh. He understands, oh, I'm a sinner. Therefore, I need atonement. I need a sin payment. I need someone to do for me what I could never do for myself. The word hilasterion is only used one other time in the New Testament. And that one other time in the New Testament is Hebrews 2.17 that says, therefore in all things, it's talking about Jesus, therefore in all things, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brethren. What he means is Jesus took on flesh to be like human beings, except for sin, and come into this world. He had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful That is the word Elias, a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation, that's hilasterion, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. I know that's not a word we use today, but it is a great word. The word propitiation literally means to pay the price and atone for the sin. Oh, but there's more. And to turn back the wrath of a holy God that should have been yours. Propitiation. That's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did. He came and was the final all-sufficient sin offering. That's why he sat down at the right hand of the Father, unlike any other priest that had served. Because it's done. Done. Never needs to be done again. He paid the, that's why we don't, that's why, praise God, none of you brought small little calves and pigeons and doves with you today. We don't, we don't come to offer a sacrifice again. We come to celebrate what has been done, what has been done, what has been done, and to help others who just might still not understand this, get it, get it, get it. He's not saying, let me off the hook. He's not saying, give me a break. He's not saying, lower your standards. He's saying, would you do something to atone for my sins? And God did. Almost 30 years ago now, we've lived here almost 30 years. We came from the deep south, which has its own set of problems. Everybody there thinks they're going to heaven because everybody there has walked the aisle during just as I am at some point. And so there's a mess down there in the south too. Tons of people who think they're going to heaven who aren't. But I had never been in an area like this. I was from Tennessee. She was from Georgia. Where we heard this many people. As we would try, we would meet neighbors and we'd be at a cookout. We'd be sitting there and I'd try to share the gospel. Try to take it in a spiritual direction. Try to talk about Jesus. I'd never been in an area that so often someone said, well, well, you can't know. You can't know if you're going to, hey, if you were to die today, do you think you'd go to heaven? Well, you can't know. No one can truly know. In the South, they know. They think they know. Oh, yeah. I threw a stick in the fire, walked the aisle during just as I am. The buses waited. My friends waited. I'm good. Here, I kept hearing, you can't know. You can't know. You can't really know. And frightening, a number of people would say, well, I was baptized as a baby, and that washed away my original sin. Are you kidding me? And I try to keep the Ten Commandments, and I hope my good will outweigh my bad. That trifecta we just kept running into. And it was disturbing. 
And so one day, I mean, Vicky is so sweet, unlike me, and merciful. So she was in the parking lot at the Kroger near our house, and she was just moved. She was so disturbed. She just had a conversation with a, with a neighbor for the second time the day before, and she saw a priest in his outfit, you know, doing that priest thing, shopping as a priest. And he was older, and she said, oh, excuse me, sir, could I ask you a question? And he turned and said, sure. And she said, how can I know that I'm going to heaven when I die? And he smiled sweetly and said, oh, well, no one can ever truly know. But keep the sacraments, try to keep the Ten Commandments, and try to treat people the way you would want to be treated. And then his voice trailed off as if he had nothing else to say. And so she said, but what about Jesus? Where does he fit in? And he said, oh, yes, 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 yes. Of course, it could never be possible without Jesus. Now, you guys, I want you to think about something. It's one thing to have no Jesus, and that's a problem. There's some people that have no Jesus in their equation. Do you realize you can have Jesus in your equation, but if he is not center stage, and it is not all about Jesus and what he's done you could still be lost. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's like if he's just in the margin or peripheral, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, and here's how I would say it to you. I'm sorry. And don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. I can't see that man's heart. I don't know where he's headed eternally. So I'm not saying I know he's not going to heaven. But let me ask you, if someone has to remind you to mention Jesus in your answer, you might be in trouble. When someone says to you, do you think you're going to heaven? And you say yes. And then they say, this could be Brad Bigney next to you on a plane. Why? Why should God let you into heaven? And you start talking about all kinds of other things and you never mention Jesus. I had it happen to me with a guy. I said, well, what about Jesus? And he's like, oh, yes, yes, yes. I need to proclaim him more. No, you need to know him. Like, Like, you never mentioned Jesus. You guys, not a good sign. When you truly understand what Jesus is bringing us here, I believe you would say, oh, because I've put my trust in Jesus who did for me what I could never do. I'm a sinner. He's a savior. When he died on the cross, he paid the price for my sins, and now I am trusting in that and that alone. Your answer ought to sound something like that. If someone, if, here's the way I would say it to you. Whatever comes out of your mouth first and most is probably what you're actually trusting in. Even though you're thinking, oh yeah, there's a Jesus. But quickly, let me give you a final punt, point because it is the stomach punch of this whole parable. Number four, don't miss the stomach punch of this whole parable. Look at verse 14. I tell you, And he points to the tax collector in his story. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Oh, that word justified is a glorious word, you guys. Paul uses it 15 times in the book of Romans. It's a word. It it was a courtroom term, you guys, that means to declare someone righteous even though they're not. You realize that's what God's doing for us? You're still a sinner, but he declares you righteous based on the righteousness of another so that your sin record and my sin record when you put your trust in Christ is cleared. Oh, but it's even better than that. Justification means your sin record has been cleared and the perfect righteousness of Christ has been applied to your account as if it's yours. That's why God the Father can sing over you. That's why you have unlimited access into his presence. That's why it's, it doesn't matter about good day, bad day. Your relationship with God is based on Jesus now who does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, yes, and say it, forever. Oh, justified. This man went down to his house justified, which means he went down to his house right with God. Peace with God, biggest problem solved. And then scary four words after that, you guys. Rather than the other. 
And in the original Greek, it literally says, not the other. Not. And the whole crowd probably gasped. Because they all were convinced, oh, it's the Pharisee. It's the Pharisee that would be right with God. It's the Pharisee. Not. 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 And that word justified right there, oh, it's in the perfect passive tense. Notice the word passive. That, that clues you in, right? It's not what you're doing. It's what you receive. You're passive. But let me help you. Perfect passive means something completed in the past. It is done. Never needs to be done. With ongoing implications in the present. You realize you're living with something done for you that can never be undone. But it has ongoing implications in the present for your life. Justified. 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 So as we close, I want to. I want to talk to two groups of people here today. If you're here and you're not a Christian, but it's because every time you considered it or looked towards, quote, supposedly the Christian camp, you thought, that looks exhausting. It would be the end of fun. That's just a group of people all trying to keep all these rules and do it all right. I don't think I can do it. And I'm not interested. And they're very judgmental and prideful. Oh, listen to me. I'm sorry That was your exposure to what you thought was Christianity. Listen to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Oh my goodness, the reason we call it good news is it's such good news. It's not based on what you're trying to do. It's not achieve. It's believe and receive and be in relationship with him. But some of you are Christians. And here's what I would say to you. You do know Christ, but guess what? You got sucked back into, because it's so innate with us. It's our hard wiring. Thinking, oh yeah, he saved me. But now I have to do enough of all the right things to earn his love. Some days he loves me lots, some days not so much. Look at me. On your best day, you cannot earn his love. And on your worst day, his love for you is not diminished it's based on Jesus rest in him because when you have this attitude of I have to earn his love now it's joyless it's exhausting it also has a measure of insecurity rest in Christ rest in Christ oh God thank you thank you for what you've done in Jesus thank you for this radically different way to be right with you to know that I have favor with God to know that I have peace to know that I'm accepted to know that I'm in a right relationship oh God thank you cause us to rejoice in it and cause us to share this good news with others I pray in Jesus name amen